459, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We're going to sing all four verses. Let's stand together as we sing 459. This morning, God's word comes to us from Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews 9, we're going to read two sections of this chapter. First, the verses 11 through 14, and then the verses 23 through 28. Hebrews 9, beginning at verse 11. What we hear now is God's word. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, 
He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. And now verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Here we end the reading of God's holy word. I invite you once again uh, to turn to your Trinity Psalter hymnal, this time to the back section and page 886. Page 886, this morning we will read the questions and answers of Lord's Day 30. Lord's Day 30, how does the Lord's Supper differ from the Roman Catholic Mass? The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. It also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, where he wants us to worship him. But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priests. And it also teaches that Christ is bodily present under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshiped. Thus the mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and a condemnable idolatry. Question 81, who should come to the Lord's table? Those who are displeased with themselves because of their sins but who nevertheless trust that their sins are pardoned and that their remaining weakness is covered by the suffering and death of Christ, and who also desire more and more to strengthen their faith and to lead a better life. Hypocrites and those who are unrepentant, however, eat and drink judgment on themselves. And then question 82, should those be admitted to the Lord's Supper 
who swore by what they profess and how they live that they are unbelieving and, un and ungodly. No, that would dishonor God's covenant and bring down God's wrath upon the entire congregation. Therefore, according to the instruction of Christ and his apostles, the Christian church is duty-bound to exclude such people by the official use of the keys of the kingdom until they reform their lives. Well, we are continuing our study of the Lord's Supper as explained for us in the Heidelberg Catechism. This is the third Lord's Day uh, on the topic and if there's one thing, children, I hope you have noticed already in our discussion of the first two Lord's Days, uh, the Lord's Supper is about Christ. It is about Christ and about what He has done. It is about the complete sufficiency of His work. That He has done everything necessary to accomplish our salvation. This morning we come to question and answer 80 in the Catechism. A question and answer that has certainly caused controversy in the church. A question and answer which, if we look at the Catechism carefully, actually breaks the pattern that the Catechism has in its discussion of the sacraments. If you look at the discussion of baptism and the discussion of the Lord's Supper, they are parallel with the exception of question and answer 80. In the discussion of baptism, in Lord's Day 26, we had really three questions. How does baptism remind you and assure you of Christ's sacrifice for you? What does it mean to be washed with Christ's blood and spirit? And where does Christ promise this? That's in Lord's Day 28, 26. If you look in 28, how does the Holy Supper remind you and assure you of Christ's one sacrifice? What does it mean to eat the crucified body and shed blood? And where does Christ promise this? The two sections are parallel to each other. Then if you look back at Lord's Day 26, excuse me, 27, it talks about the outward uh, element. Does the outward washing with water really wash away sins? No. Then why does the Holy Spirit call it that? In question and answer uh, of the Lord's Day 29, do the bread and wine really become the body and blood of Christ? Then why does Christ call them his body and blood? Parallel. And at the end of Lord's Day 27, who should be baptized? Should infants to be baptized? At the end of Lord's Day 30, who should come to the Lord's table? Question 80 has no counterpart in the baptism section. And that's because, as many of you know, question and answer 80 was not in the first edition of the Heidelberg Catechism. And that has caused some churches and some denominations to, to place this question and answer either in a footnote or remove it altogether from our confession. But if we think about what was going on at the time that this is being written, we understand why question and answer 80 was added later. 
Think of what's happening. The Catechism, written in 1563, the first version in January of 1563. What had just taken place? The Roman Catholic Church had called the Council of Trent. And in September of 1562, the Council of Trent codified the Church's teaching on the Mass. That was in September of 1562. Now, unlike today, they couldn't take that decision, you know, post it on Facebook, tweet it out, whatever means of communication we have. It took a while for that information to get out. And so it's no surprise that only a couple months later, when the first edition of the Catechism comes out, there's no really address to what Trent had said. In the second edition of the Catechism, which comes out only a couple months later in April, there's a brief statement addressing the doctrine of the Mass from the Council of Trent. In the third edition, September of that same year, a fuller statement, and by November, a year after Trent speaks, now the Catechism responds with the statement that we have today. Some have suggested that we should remove this from the Catechism because the Catholic Church has changed. And there are some things on which the Catholic Church has changed. But the Mass is not one of them. The statement on the Mass was reaffirmed as recently as the Vatican II Council. Rome has not changed on this that the Mass denies the sufficiency, the perfection of the work of Christ. Now, I have to confess, this is not my favorite Lord's Day to preach on. But I love the Heidelberg Catechism, not because it's the Catechism, but because it reflects the truth of Scripture. And we cannot ignore the teachings of Scripture, even if they make us uncomfortable, uncomfortable to hear, uncomfortable to preach. And I was reminded recently, it is important, it is vital for us as Reformed churches to hold on to our Reformed convictions. These things are worth teaching. They are worth holding on to because they come to us from Scripture. And so that's why this morning we turn to the book of Hebrews, and we're going to talk about the perfection of Christ in the Lord's Supper. The book of Hebrews is about the perfections of Christ. If I was going to give a title to the book of Hebrews, and I actually have this written in my Bible, the title I have for the book of Hebrews is Christ is better than. Christ is better than. Because the book of Hebrews is about how Christ is better than the Old Testament ministry of Moses. Christ is better than the ministry of angels. Christ is better than the giving of the law. Christ is better than the Old Testament high priest, and Christ is better 
than all of the Old Testament sacrifices because they were shadows and he is the reality. He is the one who perfectly fulfilled all those Old Testament expectations. So this morning we talk about the perfection of the Lord's Supper as it points out the absolute sufficiency and finality of the work of Christ. Christ as our Savior, Christ's work is completely sufficient. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? Christ forgives all of our sins. His sacrifice was sufficient for all of our sins. And that's where question answer 80 begins. The Lord's Supper declares to us that all our sins are completely forgiven through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. All our sins are completely forgiven. All our sins. Sometimes I think we have a tendency to kind of rank sins. God doesn't forgive just the small sins, the little things we do. God forgives the big sins. All sin we know is an offense against him, but we tend to, to think about smaller and bigger sins. All of them are, are washed away by the blood of Christ. We read that his blood by the Spirit removes us, removes our sin, and purifies our conscience. Not just an external washing away, but internally. Our consciences are purified by the power of the Holy Spirit because Christ sufficiently, totally, completely removed all of our sins. And he did that for us once for all. His sacrifice never has to be offered again. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. It never has to be offered again. He secured an eternal redemption. There is no need for more sacrifice. There is no need to add anything to that which Christ has done. We could not. Nothing we could add to help to complete His work. We are fallen. We are sinful. His work is sufficient. We don't add to the work of Christ by, by repeatedly offering Him. He has been offered once for all. Again, verse 25. Nor was it to offer Himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly 
since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In the Old Testament times, the priest would offer sacrifice daily at the altar. Once a year on that great day of atonement, he would go in and offer sacrifice, offer blood, not his own, and that would go on year after year after year after year. That is not the nature of the sacrifice of Christ. His sacrifice is once for all. It cannot be repeated again. Otherwise, he would be continually suffering. What does the confession say? But the Mass teaches that the living and the dead do not have their sins forgiven through the suffering of Christ unless Christ is still offered for them daily by the priest. But there is no more sacrifice. Christ's one sacrifice is sufficient, is complete. He has done it all. Therefore, the Mass denies. We can't get around that. The Mass denies the sufficiency of Christ because it repeatedly offers Him on the altar. Christ's work is sufficient. That's the teaching of Hebrews chapter 9. That is a truth that is worth holding on to. It is worth teaching, it is worth preaching, it is worth standing for the sufficiency of the work of Christ in salvation. We have in the supper communion, communion with God through the Holy Spirit. What does verse 14 say? How much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. We have Christ's work through the eternal spirit, a spiritual fellowship with Christ. And we talked about that, I think last time we talked about the Lord's Supper. It's, a, it's not a, a, a physical Christ presence, it's a spiritual presence. And we are spiritually united to him. Now, when Christ was on earth, they could physically be near him. Christ is now in heaven. And yet we still have that communion with him by the power of his spirit. How much better? How much better it, 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 when Christ was alive, if he walked away, he was away from you. Now, by the power of the spirit, we have continual communion with him. Again, that's what our, our confession points out when it says this. The Supper also declares to us that the Holy Spirit grafts us into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of God. The Holy Spirit grafts us. We are made part of Christ, part of his body. We have that true spiritual fellowship. And Hebrews tells us, we have this, that our consciences might be purified to cleanse us from dead works to serve the living God. We have this fellowship with Christ to strengthen us for service. To strengthen us for service to God, to strengthen us for service to others. And the, Holy, the, 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 the Supper does exactly that. By the power of God's Spirit, we are, we are individually strengthened 
by Christ himself. Just as surely as bread and wine strengthen me physically, so I am spiritually strengthened by the body and blood of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. But we are strengthened also as a body. We come together to the table of the Lord. We come together to commune with Christ. That we as a body might be strengthened. That the bonds, the communion between us might be built up. That, that just as our bodies are strengthened, so this body of Christ is strengthened every time we come to the supper. We belong together at the table. Strengthened for service. Strengthened as God's people. Strengthened to use that in service to God and in service to others. So I guess that really forces the question. We celebrated the supper about a month or so ago. How has that celebration affected your service to God and your service to his people? You came to be strengthened. You came to be built up as individuals and as a body. And that's what God promises to do by the Spirit. What have we done with that strength? Have we found a greater zeal, a greater devotion to, to serve our God, to serve others in this body? Or did we come and, and receive the blessings of God and, and really squander the strength that he gives? God in the supper promises us true spiritual fellowship. We must not neglect that. But, but knowing our consciences have been cleansed, we must serve the living God. And then finally, in the supper, we have the assurance that we will have real, authentic worship. Verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Christ is now in heaven. Before Christ, he gave pictures, he gave copies of what heaven look, looks like. The tabernacle, the temple, these were copies given to them on earth. But now Christ is in heaven where God is. And this is where he calls us to worship him. Again, the end of, uh, of that first paragraph. The Holy Spirit grasps into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of God, where he wants us to worship him. I mentioned last time that in the supper we are actually brought up spiritually into heaven. We do not take Christ down to us again. But Christ, by his Spirit, lifts us to the reality. Not merely the copies, not the temple, not the tabernacle, not the things here below, but real, authentic, true worship. Christ brings us spiritually to heaven to worship where he is. Contra the Mass. It also teaches that Christ is bodily present 
under the form of bread and wine, where Christ is therefore to be worshipped. The Mass takes Christ down from heaven. He is the body and blood in the bread and the wine. Rather than lifting us up, it drags Christ down once again. It has us worship the elements as if they were him. Is it a wonder that the Catechism uses the word idolatry to worship anything in place of or alongside of the one true God? No, in the Supper we have authentic, real, not, not the things here below, we have the real worship by the power of God's Spirit and the promise the promise of a final eternal worship. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. We have in that final reality, not only a spiritual lifting to heaven, but where Christ will bodily bring us to heaven to serve him forever. The supper is a foretaste of the final reality of heaven itself, itself. This is why we're told, do this until he comes again. As a promise, he will come again and take us to be with him when we will finally enjoy that real banquet, that true feast, that glorious wedding banquet of the church and the Lamb. Our, our, our Lord's Supper anticipates that true glorious reality. Oh, the Lord's Supper is a blessing for us, a glorious blessing, as it reminds us of the perfection, the finality, the sufficiency of the work of Christ. It truly is a feast for the soul. But it is a feast only for those who have confessed Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. We are given the Spirit only for those who embrace Jesus Christ as that one final, complete, sufficient sacrifice. And so he calls us once again today to give up trust in ourselves, to give up trust in anything around us, and to trust wholly, completely, totally in the sufficient work of Jesus Christ, to recognize what he has done for us. He has saved us from all of our sins. He has saved us once for all, never to be offered again. He has saved us to strengthen us for service. He has saved us to give us worship now and a, an eternity of worship with him forever. That truth is a biblical truth. That truth is a truth worth holding on to. It is not a truth that should make us uncomfortable at all. It is the reality of Scripture, Christ's sufficiency once for all for us. It is a truth that by God's grace, we will continue to embrace and we will continue to teach. Let's join together in prayer. Lord our God, we love your word. We love the truth of your word. And we know, O oh God, 
not everyone embraces that truth. And while that makes us sad, and while that makes us uncomfortable, it cannot make us casual towards embracing and holding that truth. Strengthen us, O oh God, to, to know the glory and the joy of the sufficiency, the absolute sufficiency of Jesus Christ. There is nothing we have to do, nothing we have to offer, and he never has to be offered again, for he has done it once for all for us. Lord God, may that be the truth that we leave with this morning, the absolute and final sufficiency of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hear our prayer, for we pray in his name. Amen.